AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Warning. This episode contains discussion of self-harm, grooming, and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. That summer was full of presents. It seemed like every time I saw him was a celebration of me, of us. There were always drinks. There were always boxes tied with bakery string, sometimes with candy or a pair of panties he thought I would like, or lip gloss or grown-up perfume. He said I shouldn't smell like a schoolgirl anymore. One night, he sat me on his couch and gave me a thin package, wrapped in newsprint, red and white bakery string. What's this? The gift was light like paper. Open it. I untied the string, peeled back the tape. It was a book, almost. A brown folder, half the size of a piece of notebook paper. Open it the right way. I had had it upside down. Oh, it had a title. Revised Evidence, Vladimir Nabokov's Collection of Inscriptions, Annotations, Corrections, and Butterfly Descriptions. I hugged it against my chest, thanking him with a kiss, his cat sleeping on the other side of the couch. I knew you'd love it, he said, smiling at me, inches away from my mouth. Of course, I kissed him again. You know I love the book as much as you. You're my Lolita, he said. That's Alison Wood, writer, professor, author of the memoir Being Lolita. 
Allison's is a story as old as time. A story of an older man in a position of power and a girl who is his prey. And the ripple effect of that story once that girl escapes his clutches and grows up. It's also a story about the people on the sidelines of the secret who may notice, who may see, but avert their eyes and mind their own business. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Tell me about the landscape of your childhood. I hate to use the word idyllic, but, you know, my childhood was pretty great. (laughs) I was a voracious reader from the time when I was very little. Um, I was always way ahead of my reading and my writing. And um, my parents were very enthusiastic and proud of me. Most of the time, my teachers... (laughs) We're also very um, encouraging. I remember my first grade teacher, Mrs. Tesla, would give me like extra spelling quizzes and give me extra assignments to keep me busy. But then, of course, when I was in the fourth grade, I had this one teacher named Mrs. Gross. Um, that was that was literally her name, and she was very frustrated that I was so ahead in sort of spelling and reading and writing and. So she began to, for half of the day, send me to the school library. So I would spend half of my day alone in the library with no other, no other kids, just with the librarians. And that was probably very impactful to my childhood looking back. The librarians adored me. They, they doted on me. They thought it was so great that somebody wanted to read. As I continued growing up, the library in town, I was there every week checking out a huge pile of books. When I was in middle school, my librarian was one of my closest confidants. (laughs) And I just, I always loved reading and, and writing. But at the same time, looking back, there was also, I always dealt with some sort of depression, even from when I was very young. Um, recently I was home over the holidays and helping my mother clean out an attic and we found all of this you know ephemera from my childhood and it included a book that i had written when i was 10 so but it says allison's book on it you know (laughs) it has all these stories and poems in there and some drawings and it has this one poem about death like I wonder what it's like to be dead (laughs) and and drawings of this like cemetery. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What is going on with this 10 year old? Those are really amazing moments when we, when we discover something, stumble across something that is ours, something that we did or wrote or, or made as a child. And, you know, the feeling is sort of like, who did that? Was that me who did like what was what was the experience of did you have any memory of, you know, that little girl who was uh, you know, sort of obsessed with ideas of of death? I had no memory of writing this book or this particular poem. The poem was rhyming, 
but you know, it was it was pretty long. It was decent, I think, for a ten year old. Looking back, I'm like, you know, Allison was trying her best. And also inside the same book, there was, of course, a short story about cats, which is very on brand about me still. But I think what it reminded me was about that same time when I was in fourth grade, my mother became concerned that I was depressed. This was also the same year that I had that terrible teacher who was sending me half the day to the library and, you know, isolating me from the other students. So my mother began having me see a therapist, a child therapist. And all I really remember is that we talked a lot. He'd have me like write things, like write stories or whatnot. I got to have Yoohoo, which was a very big deal because it was, a, I had a very like, you know, sort of, um, I wouldn't say that there was like no sugar lab, but you know, no sugary cereals, like none of that, no cookies, no candy kind of home. And I don't remember feeling depressed. I don't remember, I don't look back at myself and think, oh, I was really depressed. I've been told this and I was sort of like, okay, I guess. But then I find that poem and I'm like, oh, I guess 10-year-old Allison was kind of dark for a 10-year-old. Did you experience Mrs. Gross sending you to the library for half the day as punishment? I knew it was to get me out of her hair. I knew that was why she was sending me away. And of course, as a as a teacher, as a professor myself, I fully understand that now. But at the time, I took it all very personally and, you know, it was like, what? I, you know, I'd get frustrated. I'd get grumpy about it, um, be, partially because um, that teacher was not was not putting any effort into trying to support me more as other teachers had. Um, they, you know, she, she didn't see my, what I look back now and see, she, she didn't see my intelligence or my being sort of ahead of the curve as something positive. So while I loved the library, I'm sure that the isolation and the sort of being made to feel different, not in a good way, I'm sure that that was impactful to how I understood myself as a child. And, you know, I'm sure that it's not a coincidence that that was when I was writing all these poems about death. Describe your mother for me a little bit. My mother is someone who I've always very much looked up to. And I've always very much wanted to be like, because she is very resilient and she's very tough. She's a deputy director at a nonprofit in Connecticut. Her job for a long time has always been the person who fires people. My mother has has no problem with conflict. She's not afraid of being direct. She's someone who at work, I, I worked at the same nonprofit at her and I just didn't understand how intimidating she was to other people. Because to me, she was just mom. But she was very intimidating to other people at times. And I sort of admired that about her. Um, but then on the other hand, at my home growing up, there were always other kids there. In particular, my little sister's friends, there would always be other teenagers hanging around who would call her mom. I will sometimes describe my mother as someone who takes in strays because since I left home to go to college, there's always been somebody staying in my room. So this very, there's this very interesting dichotomy there between who she is, I think. And I think the ability to be sort of tough and strong and resilient, but also have this nurturing, this very big mom energy. 
What about your father? What's your father like? My father as well has done nonprofit work his entire life. He was a concert pianist when he was younger and he's really warm and kind and supportive. He was always the person when whatever I did, if I did a school play, if I, you know, was working on a project, whatever it was, he was always there right in the front row um being so supportive of me, which is funny because on the other hand, my mother was someone who so I did community theater for a long time and she was famous within community theater circles for walking out <laughs> if she did not like a play including if her daughter was in it yes <laughs> she was known for doing that and you know people were either deeply offended or sort of thought it was funny i i just to think it was funny but what that told me then was when she stayed for a show she really liked it that meant that when she was staying i was like wow my mother really likes this whereas my father was someone who would always be at the show always telling me how great it was and how amazing i was so it's this it's this funny difference in the two of them my father was not quite as present in my life growing up he was you know in sort of that typical way he was the one who would work late and who wouldn't always be home for dinner my mother took on much more of the sort of caregiving role the typical role for me and my little sister um she was she worked part time at certain points to support me and Lauren whereas my father never did that my mother never made any of those choices growing up none of them Lauren and I were her number one priority all the time Allison's childhood may have been idyllic but as she becomes a teenager she begins to get into deeper and deeper trouble she develops serious issues with depression and begins to self-harm. People found out because in gym class in middle school, you know, you've got the lockers, you have to change into like your gym outfit and whatnot. Two friends of mine had saw my arms and brought me to the school social worker. When I got home after school that day, my mother had already been notified obviously. I think that they sent me home early. Um and that is actually one of the only times I remember seeing my mother crying was she got on the phone to someone trying to get me some sort of services I'm sure because she was always very much a kind of person who when there's a problem she's going to solve it. She was very active and proactive in that way in particular about me and my little sister. If there's something wrong, how can we make it better? Let's do things. She was all about action. That continued throughout high school. It did not get better. Um the cutting did. but i continued being incredibly depressed i stopped going to school at certain points i switched my nights and days i was mismedicated at one point and became manic but was only manic because of the medication like i had racing thoughts i was hearing voices the whole thing at one point i was having electroconvulsive therapy because it was sort of that serious it didn't make everything better but it got me out of bed i was going back to school I wasn't thinking about killing myself anymore. So it really it really did make a difference, a big difference. But nonetheless, freshman and sophomore year of high school, I wasn't consistently getting to school, getting to classes. I was failing. At the end of sophomore year, they told me the school told me that they thought I should not come back and that I should get my diploma through night school. And my mother was like, "I don't think so." because I I of course already had of the had of all of those IEPs and disability status and they were supposed to be making all these accommodations and what not 
So my mother fought like hell to get me into a therapeutic day school for my junior year. It was great. I mean, I felt supported in ways that I hadn't been in years because one of the bad things that happens or one of the sort of side effects, I guess, of not being in school is that your teachers don't think much of you anymore. Even if you're smart, even if you know the answers in class, even if you, you know, hadn't done the homework just because you know or because you read the book already, there's this wariness. And the classroom and school had always been a place where I felt, almost always, except for that fourth grade teacher, where I usually felt very, very welcome. It was a place where I took a lot of pride, where I knew I could succeed, and teachers were really important to me. I always loved my teachers very much. And I loved going to the library and I, I would spend time after school. You know, I was, all, I was always that kid. So when that sort of larger institutional relationship fractured so severely for me in freshman and sophomore year, looking back, that was really impactful and negatively impactful in ways that I did not understand at the time, but are pretty clear to me now. We'll be right back. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. In her new small school, Allison feels accepted and valued. She's reminded that she's a smart kid and can do really well. She goes to group therapy in the afternoons, takes French, catches up on all the classes she'd missed the previous year. She gets back on track. Nobody at the therapeutic day school called me crazy. Nobody thought I was nuts. No one thought that because we were all very much in similar boats. And school was a place where I could succeed again because the teachers weren't constantly giving me a side eye. You know, if I missed a day, um, I wouldn't come back and get sort of glares or be ignored the next day. It was like, okay, great, Allison, you're here. Let's catch you up. So at the end of that year, you know, you've done well academically and you're given a choice, right, to go back to the school that you had begun at, the public high school, or to stay at the therapeutic day school, right? I have the choice to go back to my public high school and all I wanted was to be normal. So I chose to go back and... Obviously, you you can't change the past, and I don't know if it's necessarily a terrible thing that I went back, but it is definitely a choice that changed the, um, the journey of my life in some ways. So tell me about the reception that you received when you first went back. I remember that first day back in high school, back in my in my high school, I remember hearing other students say, I thought she died as I walked by. Because we know how cruel teenagers can be. <laughs> how sort of offhandedly, backhandedly cruel. And people thought I was in a mental institution, which I had never been. I'd never been hospitalized. Um, people thought that I had disappeared. People thought that I was this crazy girl. People thought that I was this slut. Because I had always, I don't even even when I wasn't going to school regularly, I always had a boyfriend. I felt more alone than I think I ever had at that point. And not only did I feel completely ostracized from the other students and misunderstood and very much judged, but I also felt like that from the teachers at school from the administration, from the ladies at the front desk, and to my individual teachers. I remember on that first day, there was one teacher in particular who I felt particularly sort of upset about how I was treated. And it was my Latin teacher. And I had loved Latin and been really good at Latin. And my Latin teacher had always sort of adored me. And then that first day of my senior year, I got into his class and he basically ignored me. And he, when he was assigning seats, you know, going through roll call, saying everyone's name and telling them where they had to sit, he did not give me a seat. And he told me to just sit in the back. And he said, let's just see how this goes because he didn't think I was gonna be showing up to class. So why bother giving me a seat? And that made me so sad. And I remember mostly being pissed and being like, what the fuck? You know, like, I, never, I didn't say that in the class, but like, 
in my head. But now I look back and I just, that's just so sad. Well, it's, it's sad. And it's also, I mean, um, to, to write off someone of that age is not just cruel, but it's pedagogically like so messed up. Yeah. That is something that as I, as I teach now to undergraduate students and just to my students in general, I will never do that to a student again, because it's so obvious to me when a student is in trouble, when a student is having a hard time. So I never question when students say, I need an extension. I know I've missed class. I'm trying to get there. I never give my students a hard time about that ever. I will never fault a student for being in a, in a tough place. And, you know, of course, in my syllabus, I say, no extensions, you know, you've got to come to class. But then in actuality, I'm a total softie. So within this hostile environment, where both students and teachers shame and ostracize Allison, her English teacher, who's new to the school, recognizes her talent and suggests that one of her colleagues, a teacher Allison calls Nick Norris, work with Allison outside of school hours to further her writing and become a mentor. I came into her class and I was really excited about taking a creative writing class and she did not come with any sort of baggage or expectations or judgment. I was just a student who was doing well and was happy to be there, which was obviously, of course, looking back, which was something great. You know, I'm sure she she was excited. It was her first year teaching and she thought that I had talent and some, you know, possibilities of (laughs) doing better. So she introduced me to Mr. North, who was a also a first year teacher. And she introduced him as my potential mentor and said, why don't you two start meeting after school? And it'll be great because I just I just don't have the capacity to do that. But I think Mr. North would be a great fit. And I was over the moon. I was so excited. The idea of having someone, a teacher, again, sort of take interest in me and want to support me was just so, I don't even think I can possibly, I can properly describe how much it gave me hope that I could still be the kind of student, the kind of person that I wanted to be and that I used to be. It sort of seemed like, here's an opportunity for me to prove everybody wrong. Here's an opportunity for me to get some support and to do better, not just with showing up to class, but with my grades and with what I was writing and to really kind of be the Allison I I wanted to be. And it just so happens as well, uh, Mr. North was young and he was very handsome and all the girls thought he was like so cute and (laughs) he played guitar and would play guitar at the coffee shops downtown where all the all the high school kids also would play guitar and like you know do their little cover bands and things he did that he wore this was nearly 2000 so abercrombie and fitch was a very big deal so he would wear Abercrombie and Fitch and those leather bracelets and those button-ups with the little moose on the pocket and very much had this sort of dual energy of both a grown-up 
because, you know, we had to call him Mr. North. He was our teacher. But he also had these very strong, like, boy kind of vibes coming off of him. It just sort of radiated off of him, who he was, this complicated figure. And so the idea that I was getting his attention for, you know, an hour after school every day was just, oh my God, I'm the luckiest girl in the world. Mr. North is 26, a teacher, charged with protecting and educating his students. This could be a great thing for Allison, right? A real game changer, a popular and admired teacher taking an interest in her writing. Except that it becomes really clear, really quickly, that Mr. North has other interests. The first time that I really understood that my relationship with Mr. North was not any other relationship with a teacher I had experienced before was right before Thanksgiving. So we had been meeting after school for about two, maybe close to three months. And in the shop class where he was uh, watching study hall, I was supposed to be in some class. I don't remember what class. He would constantly write me hall passes to get me into, to get me to meet him in his study room, to be in his classroom when he's teaching. And looking back, I, I don't know how that went on as it did, because it's just perplexing how sort of other teachers would just be like, oh, she has a pass from Mr. North. It's fine. Looking back, that's very perplexing to me. But we were in his shop classroom and he wrote me this note, like we had been doing for the past few months. He began writing me notes and in classes, we were passing notes like we were two students, but he was the teacher. And he asked me what my bra size was. And I sort of demurred and played coy. And then he told me that he would trade my bra size for how big his penis was. And that really was the first moment where I was like, oh, this really is something else. Which, looking back, I mean, that is <laughs> shockingly obvious. But there had been a lot of more subtle signs. I mean, looking back, they're not even subtle. But at the time, I really, I mean, I was 17. I thought I was in love, as in love as any 17-year-old can be. I had the biggest crush on him. And I thought that it was maybe just this, like, light flirtation or that I was maybe, like, making it up a little bit in my head. What were some of the subtle, you know, quote-unquote subtle signs? Because I think that that whole idea of making it up in your head is something that is so resonant and familiar. And, I mean, I relate to it myself, and I know so many young women who have that feeling of maybe this isn't really happening. Yeah, I mean... The relationship started with, and I, I don't think this could have happened with a math teacher. I think this is the kind of thing that can only happen with, with an English teacher or a creative writing teacher. He began reading my journals. He began having me, he, assigning me writing exercises, prompts. And then he began reading me his own writing. And then he began having me write things directly to him, to Mr. North. So things escalated, this sort of intimacy that happens when you're sharing writing, when you're sharing sort of your innermost thoughts and ideas and things like that and being vulnerable, not just emotionally, but also on the page. There's this intimacy that happens really quickly. 
And he would comment on me being pretty and sort of on, you know, my hourglass shape. And um, he would make comments about, you know, oh, you're really sexy. But I still, I kept sort of brushing it off in some ways. I still sort of thought like, oh, he's just, you know, he's just sort of flirting with me. And we began meeting outside of the classroom. We began meeting at coffee shops. We began meeting late at night at diners across town in the next town over. And these are all things that as a 37 year old woman looking back, I'm like alarm bells, <laughs> you know, get out of there. But at the time I did not take it all as seriously as I should have. I thought that I was still kind of in control. Like, well, I'm flirting back or I'm the one who's starting the flirtation today. You know, I had this idea that, well, I can handle this. When you were meeting him late nights and across town and, you know, sort of at all hours, you were living at home. You were a senior in high school. Did this raise any questions or eyebrows with either of your parents? No. And I've asked my parents about this and they for the most part say that they don't really remember what their thought process was what i was saying i mean i'm sure that i was saying things like oh i'm just hanging out with a friend i'm just working on my homework i i don't know what i was saying but i think within the context of how serious my depression had been for so long. You know, I mean, I had gone, sometimes I went weeks without wanting to leave my room, without seeing anybody, without being awake during the daytime. I switched my nights and days at times for long periods of time, which was very difficult. So I think within that sort of as the perspective, I think that they thought, well, she's getting to school. She's not suicidal. She's doing okay. Let's just let her be. Probably with some relief that you were, you know, living a quote unquote normal, you know, sort of senior year of high school kind of experience or so it seemed to them. I'm sure that, I, I mean, looking back, I'm sure that from the outside, that's what they thought. Oh, she's breaking curfew sometimes, you know, well, that, that, that's a normal teenager thing. And this was before cell phones, you know, this was the early 2000s. I mean, cell phones existed, but, you know, I was a kid in suburbia. I didn't have a cell phone. So something looking back that is very scary to me is how this secret put me in so much danger and I did not understand or comprehend or acknowledge at all at the time. But the fact that nobody knew where I was for so much time is frankly very scary now. It occurs to me from time to time when I hear certain kinds of stories that these stories would not have unfolded the way they did if they had taken place now, when everyone's connected by technology. The kinds of lies and secrets that happened even 20 years ago would never have happened in the same way today. Allison's parents didn't have the ability to track her on Find My Friends or a call to check in with her, even if it had occurred to them. The other question that occurred to me before we move forward is, um, it's kind of a, it's a tricky question in a way, um, but did you know that you were very pretty I don't mean looking back now in that way of, you know, sort of looking at pictures and realizing, oh, my God, I was really pretty. But did you did you know it as a as a 16 year old, 17 year old? No, 
I was wildly insecure. I thought that with enough effort and with sort of that kind of sexy, seductress, flirtatious attitude that we saw all over media, all over TV shows. You know, this was back in the era of Britney Spears, of Dawson's Creek, of sort of all that pop culture that's so much about sexualizing young women and teenagers. I mean, I think that era of the pop star is just something so specific and disturbing um, in a way that, you know, I mean, of course, like the sexualization of young women is always disturbing, but I think that was really an apex of this sort of specific kind of perspective that society had on young women. And I thought that, well, I'm not pretty, but if I put on enough makeup and I wear low cut shirts and, you know, low rise pants, which was of course all that was being sold at Abercrombie and Fitch and like all those mall stores. And if I could do that, then I could look pretty enough. And I saw that as a way to be powerful. Because, of course, there are so many signals in media, in our society, in in our language that young women in particular's power is through sex, is through their body. I think part of what made me so attracted to him was how overt he was about his attraction to me. And that sort of experience of being seen as sexy, not just as sexy, he thought I was smart. He thought I was a good writer. He thought that I was a good person. He thought that I had just had a rough couple of years and that's normal. And he would sometimes say things like, I don't know why you were so sad because you're so smart and you're so beautiful and you are only potential. And those are things that no one had ever said to me at that point. I just ate that up. I mean... I I think anyone would have, but me at that point in my life, he was just under 10 years older than me. He was the cute teacher in my school. All the girls thought he was like the hot one. So just that sort of attention from him was just overwhelming. So the fact that the asking me for, for my bra size in return for the size of his penis was happening before Thanksgiving, I think... So not even three months later, I think that says something about how quickly the the, um, relationship escalated to deeply inappropriate. And it mostly continued on like that for the rest of the year. At one point, he felt like people were suspecting things. So he, he had me start dating somebody and was giving me sort of these very specific instructions. And at the same time, got very jealous of the fact that I was spending time with this other guy this teenager, (laughs) this guy who was only, who was 19, who was, you know, my age, basically, he was a friend of a friend. And Mr. North got very jealous about that and very angry. And I was full of guilt because this other teenage boy really liked me. And he said he was in love with me. And I was like, I'm just doing this because Mr. North is telling me to. Well, uh, the point should be made too, right? That you were 17. So aside from the fact the, that he was your teacher and that and that he he could lose his job and you know that that would be you know a huge deal if if this all was discovered you were legally underage yes I was legally underage and he began to bring that up a lot in our time together especially at the diner I mean once he wrote at the diner we we would pass 
pieces of the paper placemats or napkins or these um, pieces of paper from school back and forth, you know, writing these sort of very sexy, intense things back and forth to each other. And I remember once he wrote something about how playmates are only 18 and we are, we being society, (laughs) are told to look and yet I'm supposed to cast my eyes away from you. These sort of very romantic, but now I see is also very deeply manipulative and kind of icky ideas. Um, but at the time it seemed like, wow, he's just so smart and deep <laughs> and right. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn. 
burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mr. North introduces Allison to his favorite novel, Lolita, by Vladimir Nabokov. He tells her it's the greatest love story ever told. Allison later, way later, learns to her horror and shame that Mr. North has been mispronouncing the surname of the Russian novelist. It's not Nabokov, it's Nabokov. Even in this, he was a poseur, a fake, a charlatan she couldn't see through. He gave me Lolita pretty early on. He gave it to me that fall one night at the diner in the parking lot. And he had read to me the opening already. And he gave me his copy and had inscribed it to me. This book is love, lust, and lightning. And I just thought it was the most romantic thing ever, ever. I could not even, my mind practically exploded at the (laughs) romance he was offering me. He told me that it was this beautiful story about love and that this was a story about us and it was these star-crossed lovers and it was this seduction by this young woman and nobody could understand their love, so it had to be a secret. And I, I lapped it up. I didn't know any better. I literally did not even know what an unreliable narrator was at that point in my life. So I thought that this book was what I was supposed to be aspiring to be. I thought that Lolita Dolores Hayes was sort of my model and that by being like her, I was being powerful. I was being this sexy Jezebel. And I was given the impression because he told me that that was the height of sex and love and lust. Well, and it was the perfect vehicle for his grooming of you because of this combination of what the novel entails and also its literary, you know, greatness. So he's presenting it to you as an English teacher and as a fellow writer. I imagine when he first presented it to you, it must have been like sort of the the perfect key, you know, like the, the perfect you know, key for the lock or the, you know, the open lock, really, that was you at that time. Very much. I mean, even now, I mean, people still talk about Nabokov being one of the greatest writers. There are graduate school classes just devoted to Nabokov. And so he put Nabokov on this incredibly high pedestal for me and very much introduced it as this is the greatest love story of our century. And looking back, it was. It was the perfect tool for grooming. But I never thought of it like that. I thought I was so special for him sharing this with me. And I also knew it was sort of like a scandalous book. I knew that, too, because he told me, you know, don't let people know that I gave it to you. Don't, you know, it's, it's a secret. It's a secret between us, like everything was. And so I thought that that made me special. And that that made it special, like he was risking something to give this to me. And that, of course, made me just want it more, like any teenager. Looking back, it makes me very sad that a piece of literature was used 
in that way. But I also have very complicated feelings about Nabokov and Lolita now in that I think it is a beautiful book. I think it is a beautifully written book, that opening, Light of My Life, Fire of My Loins, My Sin, My Soul. I mean, my God, it's a be- there are just some beautiful, beautiful parts in that book, staggeringly beautiful, that I teach in class because they're just su- such powerful examples of the tools of literature, the tools of language. And there's all that wonderful stuff, but it is also problematic as fuck. And it's 2021. It can be both. It can be beautiful. And it is also a story about rape and kidnapping and grooming. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to acknowledge both. Right. And pedophilia. Yeah. And pedophilia. Yes. (laughs) Just that, that little thing. Just that. The direction of Allison's life is now firmly being controlled by Mr. North. He starts talking to her about their future, the two of them. He pushes her toward Ithaca College because he has plans to attend graduate school nearby at Cornell. This, too, is about as genuine as his pronunciation of the author of Lolita. Anyway, Ithaca College isn't Allison's first choice, but that's where she goes. Mr. North is the master of her destiny. And her parents... Her parents still have no idea what's going on. On the night after she graduates from high school, literally the next night, she and Mr. North, what to say, consummate their relationship, begin their affair? None of the words are quite right. Let's just call it what it is. They have sex. Mr. North, or Nick, as I began calling him, made it really clear that spring that we were going to be together, that he was in love with me, that by going to Ithaca College, he was going to go back to Cornell and get his PhD in another year. And then we could just be together as like two co-eds in town and we wouldn't have to be a secret anymore. So when I graduated, I knew, okay, this is this, is this line that we are going to cross. Up until then, it had never been physical with the exception of this one time he kissed my ankle. (laughs) And that was the line. And he told me that it was because he could get fired. And I did not want him to get fired. And I was adamant that I would never tell, that I would never let that happen to him. But then the night of my graduation, at my graduation party, or graduation ceremony afterwards, he gave me his phone number. He told me to call him. And I went to his apartment the following night. And I got very drunk. (laughs) He got me very drunk. You know, I was 18 at this point. Um, I really only had like beers at some sort of party on someone's back porch. You know, I'd had very, very little um, interactions with alcohol. I'd never done drugs. And he got me drunk (laughs) on Cosmopolitans because Sex in the City was cool then. So I was like, yeah, I'll have a Cosmo. I I didn't know what I wanted to drink um, because I didn't know what I liked to drink. But I got really drunk and we had sex for the first time. And I don't remember all of it, but I do remember it was very uncomfortable and it was not at all romantic or anything like the fantasy that I had sort of put upon what our relationship was going to be like and what our 
you know, quote unquote love was. And I remember thinking that it was me, that I had done something wrong and that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't know how to have sex, <laughs> you know, that I was doing things wrong. Um, and I very, very much blamed myself. And the relationship very quickly became even more controlling and very emotionally and verbally abusive. And over the next six, nine months when we were together, um, as you said, having the affair, you know, I really hate the word affair, but the problem is there's no word for what was happening. It's not a relationship because that sort of suggests this innate um, equality. And there was no equality in our relationship. Um, he was far more the person in power than I ever was, even for a moment. And we weren't dating because that sort of seems too casual and sort of like, you know, you're dating in high school. But he wasn't in high school. He was almost 10 years older than me. He wasn't my boyfriend because it was a secret. Nobody knew. And something that I think is really interesting and frustrating is that we don't have a word for this, which I think tells us a lot about what our language and what our culture thinks about these relationships or, or doesn't. So the relationship continued and it continued to be a secret. And I began to get really frustrated by that because um, it was exhausting to keep this secret because by then I, I had made friends. I had sort of found my place as a teenager in my high school. I had sort of made more social connections and I was constantly lying. Why did it have to continue to be a secret at that point when you were 18 and had graduated? He said he would get fired if anybody found out. So we had to continue being a secret. And I did not understand that. I was like, I'm 18, it's fine, what's the big deal? But he insisted that it continue being a secret. And who was I to argue? So it seems like he continued to become more and more sort of emotionally and verbally uh, abusive, something that he hadn't really overtly been when he was grooming you, when he was like effectively courting you by grooming you. When I went off to college, that was really when things took a turn to the even worse. The relationship was nothing like I had imagined. The relationship was absolutely not the fantasy and this wonderful, romantic, beautiful love story that he had promised me. It was really ugly at times. It was full of him humiliating me at times. Once he made me pee in front of him because he said that this was what real relationships are about, which just horrified me. And I, you know, and he forced me to, he, he put me in the bathroom and he would not let me leave. There would just be these very humiliating and these deeply imbalanced uh, power moves <laughs> that he would make. And those just began to increase. And when I went off to college, he would come up and visit me sometimes, but it got really ugly really fast. Probably the worst, one of the worst fights that we had was when, was that semester, I was taking a literature course and we were talking about short stories and Poe and my professor had, you know, talked about how Poe was the father of the short story. So 
I was with him and I and he was like, how's classes? And I was like, oh my God, we're talking, you know, we're learning about these things and I'm so excited and Poe and I was saying all of that and he laughed at me and said, you know, your, your professor is wrong. You, you're not learning anything there. And I got, you know, upset and he began arguing with me that another writer, I think, I think he said Nathaniel Hawthorne <laughs> was the father of the short story. And we got into a screaming match about it. And we were both drunk because it did not take me much to get drunk. And he threw a glass across the room and it shattered on the wall. And I broke down crying. And I mean, these sort of fights happened more and more. The more that I began to sort of get my own opinions about things and began to not see him as this all-knowing, all-controlling figure, the more tension we had. And eventually it became very sexually abusive and there are definitely times in that relationship when looking back 20 years later i would call that rape what happened i would never say that at the at the time at the time again i just thought he'd gotten mad at me i was doing something wrong it was my fault and i never ever would have used that word But now, he definitely raped me at least twice. Yeah, there were definitely moments when our sex was non-consensual on my part. What do you think allowed you to ultimately get out? Because not everyone gets out. I think that very, very luckily, I saw that because of keeping him, Nick, the teacher a secret in while I was in college I was putting myself back into that same isolated not connecting with people place that I had been in high school in my senior year when I first returned because I wasn't able to go out with my friends I wasn't really making friends because it's weird when you know you can't go out with them that night you have to stay home in your dorm room waiting for the teacher to call you and you can't tell anybody that that's why you're waiting in your dorm room. There was just this constant lying. And I just, somehow I was able to see that, that he made me feel shitty, that I was crying way too much, that it became clear that he probably was not going to be getting into any PhD program, much less Cornell's. So <laughs> we were not going to be able to be just two co-eds like he had promised. And I somehow found the strength to walk away and to want to have my own life. And frankly, I, I don't know how I did that. I don't know. But I thankfully was able to. Allison graduates from Ithaca College and works at a nonprofit with at-risk teenagers perhaps a way of repairing some of her own wounds. She eventually enrolls in a Master of Fine Arts program and becomes a professor of writing herself, a wonderfully full-circle moment. When she becomes a teacher, it truly drives the point home to her. Even though her parents should have been able to read some of the signs that she was in trouble, it was really her teachers, the ones who witnessed what was happening, who had to see the way this teacher-student relationship had gone off the rails, and who said and did nothing. 
The first time I walked into a classroom as a professor, it was a slap in the face. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I had been working with teenagers for quite a while at that point, which of course, looking back, it all makes sense. It's like, aha, this is part of my processing. Um, Working with girls, doing empowerment stuff, doing work around consent and dating violence and you know, reading programs and all and all the specific work with girls. And at the time, I did not see any of those things. I just liked that work. But looking back, it's all clearly part of my dealing with what had happened to me. But then becoming a teacher myself was this whole new experience. And it is just striking how when you are a professor, when you are a teacher, and you have a workshop, you have a classroom full of students, it is just, as someone who is 37 now, so literally 20 years later, they're just so young. Even if, even though they're 18, 19, maybe they're even 20, they're so young. I mean, there, there's just no other way to put it. And this is not to, of course, disavow their agency, their maturity, their strength, their intelligence, but they are still children too. You know, many of them have never lived on their own. They've never paid a bill. Some of them don't know how to do their own laundry or how to cook for themselves. I mean, in a lot of practical ways, they're still children, but also just emotionally, you can tell in their bodies that they're still children in their faces. And then it's also so obvious when a girl is in trouble in particular. There's always at least one student, one girl, it's always a girl, who is having a hard time and needs some support and needs extra attention and care. And this need just radiates. It's so, her vulnerability is just so obvious. And I remember that first day in the classroom before we were just introducing each other, you know, not even, not even working on writing or doing anything like that, just sort of starting to get to to get to know each other in the classroom. And there she was right in front of me. And it was me. I saw myself in this girl and it just made me realize how vulnerable I was, what an easy target I was. And it made me so viscerally mad and angry about what happened to me in this whole new way. At this point, I had already been angry and already been frustrated about what what had happened. You're like, this is really shitty. This wasn't my fault. You know, all of those things. But then becoming a teacher myself and, you know, my students are even a little bit older than I was. But to go into a classroom and see your students as anything but people that you need to protect and do take care of and provide for, to look at your students and think, wow, I want to try to fuck that one. There is nothing more wrong to me. And I just got viscerally angry about what happened to me in this whole new way. I mean, I I think teaching is sacred. I really do. So to understand in this new perspective, what was done to me, it was illuminating because I then better understood myself and what had been done and it also sort of sharpened my anger 
and also, frankly, my resolve to not let this happen in my classroom or in any classroom that I had any part of. I'm just having an insight listening to you, which is that I don't think that shame and anger can occupy the same space. When shame takes over, it's not possible to feel the kind of white-hot clarity. Because shame means the wrongness is us. And anger is taking that wrongness and turning it around 180 degrees and saying, no, I was a victim here. And you were the person who was in power and was in, was in charge and who did this. I didn't do this. You did this. And you can't get there when there still are these vestiges of shame. And I think it can take a really long time to have all of that really peel away. It took me a good 15 years. I spent probably the first 15 years after this had happened thinking it was my fault, you know, thinking I had seduced him, that I was just as much of a, you know, participant in this relationship as he was. And being in a classroom made it so clear that, nope, that is not what was happening. And I think you're right, the sort of white-hot clarity of anger, of you know, sort of putting that blame outward for the first time, really, in some ways. And I like the word victim. I know some people don't, and obviously this is a very personal thing, but I actually like the word victim because, to me, it sort of innately suggests a victim of something, a victim of someone, as opposed to, you know, a word like survivor, which to me is kind of flattening. And, I mean, you know, all all words can be flattening, but I think it eliminates the part of acknowledging the harm. And I think that moment in the classroom, and every time I step foot into a classroom, is part of me acknowledging the harm that was done to me, that I did not bring upon myself. I was 17, I was a kid. This man was an adult. He was almost 10 years older than me. He was a grown-up. There was, there's no way to excuse his behavior. Maybe I thought he was cute and maybe I was flirting with him. But the thing is, that was completely developmentally appropriate for a 17 year girl to have a crush on our teacher, to try to flirt with adults. Like, that's fine. But he should have known better. And he did. And he did it anyway. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartMedia. Dylan Fagan and Bethann Macaluso are the executive producers. Andrew Howard is our audio editor. If you have a secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming bonus episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Writer. Facebook at facebook.com slash familysecretspod and Twitter at famsecretspod. And if you want to know about my family's secret that inspired this podcast, check out my New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 